Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. and gentlemen, welcome to the Heretics Hour with me, Carolyn Yeager. It is Monday, March 16th, and I'm doing something a little different tonight. I'm coming to you on a pre-recorded show that I produced myself yesterday. Recall that I said I might not, I said last week that I might not have a program tonight, but I figured out how to record an MP3 by myself faster than I thought I would. So here I am bringing you a program after all tonight, but I'm not live. Tonight's program will also be about one hour instead of two. And I also wanted to do this program tonight because uh, I wanted to thank a couple of people for donations that I received a couple weeks ago, which I didn't know that I had received, and so I didn't respond to the people. I didn't uh, acknowledge their donation until yesterday, or the night before yesterday, so uh, I am, uh, I was really shamefaced about that, but the reason was that they came in uh, in PayPal, and PayPal always sends me a notification in my email when I get a, a donation, and I hadn't gotten anything for quite a while, for a while. Well, I had a, l- a little bit before this, but I hadn't received these, and so I didn't, I don't go and look at it uh, in this particular account all the time, so... I didn't know they were there, and when I did go into this account the night, uh, a couple nights ago, wow, I was so surprised at what I saw, and when I took it all in, then I quickly uh, sent emails to these two people. I was really happy about this one from uh, Petteri or Petteri or Pete from Finland, who sent a very generous amount of money to me, and I don't know who he is, if he might be one of those Finnish friends who who send comments sometimes, I don't, and use, you know, using uh, not the same name, but anyway, I was very pleased about that, and I wrote to him, and then 
got this very special contribution from a person in California, and I'm not sure if I should give his name because I can't remember if he told me not to mention his name or not. I kind of vaguely think that, so I'm not going to say his name. But he is an Italian with an Italian name in California, and he is the one who sent me that contribution about a year ago or maybe a little longer that really really knocked me for a loop. I'll tell you, it was so it was so wonderful. And we exchanged some emails after that, and then uh, we hadn't heard from him for a while. But, you know, he sent me, uh, I'm going to give the amount of it because it has meaning. He sent me $500, which is, you know, I don't generally receive anything like that <laughs> from contributors. And so I was quite, you know, my eyes were bugging open again. And I didn't realize until that night, after I had even written to him, that uh, what that why it was five hundred dollars, and that it came on March first. It came into my PayPal account on March first, and he's a very he's not a braggy kind of person, so he doesn't say anything about it. He just sends the money. Uh, And uh, I realized that that was the fifth anniversary of the Heretics Hour, and he he follows my shows and he knew that and so that's why he sent $500 on that date as like $100 for each year that I've been doing the Heretics Hour and the March 1st was the actual uh, anniversary date for the Heretics Hour so that was so touching to me I just thought that was so wonderful and special and I felt so bad that I didn't even know about it and didn't even say anything to him until March 15th. So uh, this is really, well, this is really not an apology, but I just wanted to mention it tonight. So I want, I didn't want to wait another week to mention it. So I thought I'd better get this show out. And I wanted to test out my recording apparatus here, how I'm doing this. So I also want to thank Kevin McDonald, not for money, but for uh, sending a comment to carolynyeager.net. He wrote a comment, which most people are not going to see, because it's at the last, uh, final installment of the, the Poldy Wenger Letters Home. The Wenger Family Archive on carolynyeager.net has two sections to it and a lot of material on there by Willie and Poldy Wenger. And Poldy was the one who uh, became a, uh, a fighter pilot and had an interesting life and wrote a lot of wrote about it, either either in his diary or in his letters home once he got into the uh, Luftwaffe, and he was at the Annapolis school too, and I got all that from his uh, dear brother, Willie, who is still living and is a wonderful, wonderful friend. I just love Willie Wenger and his wife, Wilma, who I keep up with, but not as well as I'd like to. Well, I just think that's a very special archive there. That uh, And I was just, that particularly uh, made me so pleased to learn that Kevin McDonald read it. And he left a comment at the last installment. Um, and it was a uh, very interesting personal and intimate viewpoint of one person's war. From the fun optimism in France to the increasingly harrowing and costly reports from the Ostfront, the letters provide a great insight into life on a Schlachtgeschwader. On a Schlachtgeschwader. That's a, a squadron. 
Thank you so much for publishing these letters home. Regards, Kevin McDonald. I must say, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Kevin McDonald, and not so much a fan, but I, uh, not just a fan, but I have so much respect for him. And uh, I was quite uh, pleasantly taken aback when I got this letter and realized it was actually from him, and not a letter, but this comment. That also makes me so pleased that he looks at my site and that he read these uh, read this section and found it very interesting. Of course, it is very interesting. And I agree with everything he says here that, you know, I think I would thank myself, too, for publishing these letters if I came upon them somewhere. So uh, it's I encourage people to read them, take a look at this section if you haven't done so already. And so now my program for tonight, ladies and gentlemen, is about a friendly email that I got from a listener who actually likes Adolf Hitler, but has some uh, thoughts in that are so common amongst people on the Internet uh, who think that it's wrong to just see Hitler in just a positive light. You know, it must... There must be some things that he did wrong and some things that we should we can we should criticize more and we should be far more critical of him. Well, he he has a lot of criticisms, but uh, I don't know if you if that's the word that is the best word for them, but I'll say issues and so he's addressed some um issues that he has and he asked me to uh, bring to do a program on these sometime. So I'm doing it right away because I just got this this past week. And I wrote to him and I explained, I answered some of his questions. But he wrote back, and, and again, saying uh, very nice and thanking me for being so prompt. But uh, he didn't. it didn't seem like he was too convinced by what I said. So now I'm going to... Therefore, uh, read his letter to you, his con- his yeah his email to you, and then I'm going to go through and go through and uh, give some comments of my own on this, and I hope that will satisfy. It should satisfy Jim, the the writer, and uh, should be interesting to other people. But I don't know that it's going to change anybody's mind because these are the kind of things that are constantly brought up and answered, but people who feel that these questions are legitimate in these, not attitudes, but these these beliefs about Hitler and National Socialism are valid, are not ready to change their mind about it. A lot of people, like I said, like I said earlier, I think that a big part of it is that they don't want to be 100% or 90% or too positive toward Adolf Hitler. They like like they like Germany, and some of them like him says he likes national socialism, and even is a national socialist. But well, okay, I'm going to read this, and you're going to see what he says. So this is dated Tuesday, March 10th. So it's uh, only uh, six days ago, and I think that he is referring to a Hitler table talk program that that he had probably just listened to. And he says, thanks for another great episode. I've been a listener and fan of yours since your days at Voice of Reason. And your show and a few other shows I like are a breath breath of fresh air compared to the dreadful, god-awful 
degenerate Western mass media environment in which we're constantly immersed. Anyway, on the topic of Hitler's beliefs in survival of the fittest, that nature is a ruthless dictatorship, etc., I've often wondered this. The fact remains that Hitler and his party lost World War II, so by their own philosophy, weren't they inferior and unfit to survive in this world? I'm playing the devil's advocate here, but couldn't one argue that Hitler and the National Socialists were ill-adapted to survive this world's environment because they failed to account for the reality of Jews in high places in all the Allied governments? And because a personality cult, which is what National Socialism became, is vulnerable to failure after all, quote, der Führer is never wrong, unquote, so Hitler's inner circle didn't dare question his tactical errors. He's putting these as questions. I'm specifically thinking of letting the UK Army, the United Kingdom or British Army, escape Dunkirk, the launching of Operation Barbarossa, and the declaration of war against America, in parentheses, to honor the tripartite pact, period. He didn't put that, he didn't put a question mark there. Had his general said, Mein Fuhrer, are you sure this is wise? And had he listened, I think the disaster that happened and that we live with today wouldn't have occurred. It's for, the re- it's for this reason I consider myself a national socialist as opposed to a Hitlerist, similar to how Marxists will say they're committed, no, similar to how Marxists will say they're communists, but not Stalinists. I think national socialism should be about the bulk and not about any one individual, and to put principle before personalities, as the Twelve Steppers say. My short take on Hitler is that he made some great mistakes, but he was a great man. I'd love to hear you address some of my questions and issues I've raised on a show sometime. Take care, Jim. Well, as I said, I wrote to Jim and gave a few little uh, responses, uh, and he wrote back and thanked me for being brief, but didn't didn't sound like he he uh, was convinced by what I said. He's probably pretty well thinks he's got the right attitude here. So anyway, I'm going to go through this now and start here by saying that on the topic of Hitler's beliefs in survival of the fittest, that nature is a ruthless dictatorship and so on. And I've often wondered uh, that the fact about this, that the fact remains that Hitler and his party lost World War II, so by their own philosophy, weren't they inferior and unfit to survive in this world? That was that was the first thing I'm. Uh, that was the first thing he said. So that's the first thing I'm answering. And I say, well, the uh, Germans are still on top in this world, but they play ball with the Jews and Jew finance. Hitler and National Socialism were targeted by the Jews for destruction. So I'd like you to see how well you or anybody else would do if you were in that place. I would like to point out that. The whole point is the fact that the Third Reich was targeted by the international Jewry and and the other major countries in Europe, United Kingdom, and the British Empire, so to speak, 
all became the enemies in that in that battle right at the beginning. But the Jews were behind it in Jewish finance. When that happens, you've got a lot of enemies. What he is saying is that that they fail to account for the reality of Jews in high places in all the Allied governments. He's saying that that they uh, that they should never have uh, gone up against this, you know, because they didn't fail to account for it. They pointed it out all the time. They are very aware of it. But what what Jim is thinking or saying, I don't know what he thinks, but he's saying that we we cannot go up against Jewish control. And if we do, we should know we're going to get destroyed. So there, therefore, any attempt to fight for our freedom from Jewish control is uh, is doomed. And he goes so far as to say that we're inferior, that maybe the National Socialist philosophy was inferior because they tried to free themselves from Jewish control. If you don't fight it, fight it off, you're already destroyed. A lot of people imagine that if Hitler had just stopped, let's say, in 1938 and had left off Poland, not not attacked Poland, that somehow uh, everything would have gone on the way it was then and everyone would have accepted that and the Third Reich would have flourished. Um, but see, this is, this is a false conclusion to come to because there are ever so much ever so many reasons to understand that that was not going to happen that way let me go down to a yeah a story i just saw today about fringe parties surging in europe and this is a kind of a dumb thing from a christian science monitor trying to give some background on why why Europeans are disaffected and why they're turning to these fringe parties that are called soft right parties or soft left parties. And in any case, they gave a couple of uh, examples of Germans. And these Germans said some interesting things which I think make a good point for what I'm talking about here. They said that this one, I'm just starting somewhere in the middle of the article, at 11 a.m. on a frigid Sunday, Andreas Bost has just finished a five-hour shift as an office cleaner in Dresden, Germany. It's his job to buff the floors at a mall in the heart of this Baroque city. Mr. Bost is happy to be employed, but he is far from content in life. Yes, he knows that Germany is the powerhouse of Europe. Yes, he knows that Germany builds some of the world's best cars and exports some of the finest machine tools. But he doesn't want to hear any of that. What matters to him is that he hasn't bought a new winter coat in eight years. Germany is not a country, says the minimum wage earner bitterly. It's a company, and we are not the people. We are the personnel. That's interesting, because it makes me think of what Hannah Reich said long after the war when she complained that Germany had become a land of uh, car makers and and something else like that, instead of the great idealistic thinking that went on under Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. And she didn't like it. And this this is saying the same type of thing, that Germany has come under, actually it's come under Jewish finance. It's not no longer fighting against it. It's uh, it's quite content to, and the, the, it's not content maybe, but the, the uh, government that's been installed there after its defeat, everything about National Socialism was utterly wiped out. 
then what we have is a country that's like the rest of Europe that's going along with the economic idea and the money idea. And this is what Germany is now. And this this man is saying that the people who are at the top are doing fine, or even maybe some people in the middle. But he's not doing fine. It's not a country where that cares about all of its people anymore. And that's what Hitler did. He cared about all of his all of the people and wanted to make sure that all of the people had a good life and everybody was was treated fairly, and nobody was taking advantage of the other. But that's no longer there. And what we have now is uh, what 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 we have now in in Germany is what you see when the Jews, when Jewish finance and Jewish economics are in control. Now, there's another woman, and she's also in East Germany, not in Dresden, but probably not too far from there. And she says, uh, well, the the, uh, the uh, news article says, the EU is another favorite pincushion for disaffected voters across Europe. Etta Schaefer, a stylish young grandmother who owns a carpentry business with her husband and son in a little town in eastern Germany, says that she has joined Germany's anti-EU party, Alternative for Germany, because she thinks the euro was an experiment that has failed. Europe is not for the people. It is for big business, she says. Even in Germany, she adds, the statistics look good, but the people are exploited. So she is echoing, in a different way, what the the man said. Those are good examples of what happens when you are not fighting off the Jewish power and uh, the Jewish uh, control of your country. I hope I've made my point there. If not, I'll have to come back to it. Jim says, and because of personality cult, which is what National Socialism became, is vulnerable to failure because, after all, der Fuhrer is never wrong. So Hitler's inner circle didn't dare question his tactical errors. And then he's specifically thinking about Dunkirk, etc., which I will address. But first, I will say that uh, he says that there was a personality cult. But I've got that. I'm going to talk about that a little further down. So I'm just going to say here that when he says, had his general said, mein Fuhrer, are you sure this is wise? And had he listened, well, it's pretty well known, it should be for anybody who really studies Hitler, that that his generals did say that a lot. And they always said that. And he didn't have an easy time with the with the generals, and they didn't just do what he said, and he uh, didn't expect them to. He always used a lot of persuasion to uh, try to convince them to see it his way. So this this is an error in thinking that Hitler's inner circle was, even if it wasn't the generals, even if it was other politicians or whatever, that his inner circle didn't dare question him or point out that he might be in error. And he was quite open to that also. So this idea um, that everybody was just clicking their heels and rushing off to do what he said and nobody uh, wanted to think for themselves and didn't think for themselves because they're afraid and Hitler would 
get all incensed and maybe, you know, say off with your head and put them in prison or something because nobody could question him is is totally false. I mean, it's absolutely bullshit. And we see in table talk, well, it's mostly him talking, but we see how he how he brings up subjects of people disagreeing with him quite a lot, you know, how he had to deal with it, and he had to try to get them to see it his way, because he was, he didn't decide on something until he was convinced he was right about it. And here I will say that I am one of those people who who thinks that Hitler was right. Hitler was right. I'll say Hitler was right, and I think Hitler was, for the most part, always right. At least at the time that he was saying things and doing things, you can always find later that things didn't go quite the right way. But uh, as he was functioning at that time, from his own right attitude and the facts that he could know, he he was right about things. Now, I'm going to get right on to Dunkirk here and then go back to the personality cult thing later. To say that Dunkirk and Barbarossa were a mistake is, uh, is kind of ridiculous. And in as an armchair general... 70 years later, you can say things like that and feel like you, you, you're you in the know, but you might be lacking the true facts. Now, Dunkirk, that's one of the most popular things to hold against Hitler. That's, uh, that Some people like to say, well, the war was lost right there. Uh, there was no point in going on after that, things like that. Well, in my view, and I think I'm I'm right, is that Hitler's idea was that he had shown so much superiority by that point of German will and strength, the strength of his armies and uh, his victories, that he was at that very, very strong position. And he thought that, that it was a good time to put out the hand to Britain for the partnership that he still, at that time, thought possible. He didn't want to beat Britain down to where they couldn't be friends again. He didn't want to, you know, shame Britain. He didn't want to make them desire only revenge against him and so on. He still at that point, and it was it was possible for him to still think that at that point. He didn't think so later. Shortly after this point, or at least after, uh, by 1941, he and by 1942, for certain, he didn't think that. He knew that wasn't possible, and he saw Britain differently. But at this point, he still had the idea of his of his goal for Europe as uh, facing together facing together the threat from the east, the Bolshevik threat, and the communist threat from Stalin. And he uh, and this is he had the big picture in mind, and he thought this was a possibility to allow these British captured, uh, trapped, I should say trapped, they weren't captured yet, trapped British soldiers to uh, to get back to Britain. And, and he was holding out the hand of, uh, of Britain joining with Germany. And you, we know the plan that he had, that Britain would keep its empire and would keep uh, the dom- control of the seas with its great naval force, and Germany would control the European continent with its army and would and would go into Russia and would succeed there without Britain but that without having to continue to fight Britain and America wasn't in the war yet so this this was a, the big picture that he had and I think it was smart and wise and it was thinking outside the box we could say well we've we've captured these uh 
Brits here and we need to round them up and then, you know, it's going to be a big blow against Britain. Well, it was already a blow against Britain, a victory in, in France. They took Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, and France. That was already, you know, that was a, an amazing uh, achievement there. But they had to occupy all these places. And the other consideration, see, was that if they then invaded uh, Britain, they would have to occupy it. Now, they could have just kept those men and not occupied it, but this this uh, also shows that, that Hitler was a, a man of uh, grand gestures and a man of generosity. He's a very generous man, and he didn't want to fight against his fellow Europeans, as some people like to say. He didn't want to do that. He he had to do it because they were they declared war on him and on on his nation and on his Reich. So this I think was not the great turning point that people want to make it out to be. It showed the the, the nature of, of Adolf Hitler and it showed the nature of the British that they couldn't take that and they did had no intention of being friends with National Socialist Germany at all. I'll go on to Barbarossa, and I'm just so happens there's a lot I could say about Barbarossa without this new Himmler speech that we have available now, but I thought, well, I'll just take this because it's uh, pretty good, and I'll quote it. We know, it's known from all kinds of books and information that Stalin was planning to attack Europe and had had all these divisions and and uh, planes and so on on the right on the border in an attack position, not in a defensive position. And Hitler had uh, understood that 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 was happening. He was planning to eventually take on the Soviet Union, but now he thought he had to do it quickly as possible. And that's why the Barbarossa invasion took place. And it was a it was a very excellent timing. But in the end, they weren't able to overcome the huge power that Stalin had amassed uh, in Russia and the vast manpower that he had to draw on and so on. So uh, people now will say, well, that was his big mistake. That, that, he should never have done that, and everything would have gone along the same way as before. they said before. Everything would have gone along just fine, and nobody would have bothered Adolf Hitler in, in his National Socialist regime. There in Germany, and uh, we could all be living well today. We could all be national socialists today. And Europe would be free today, etc. As some of you might know, and I put on my website that the show blogger on his blog has been translating this Himmler speech from uh, August 1944, two months after the July 20th assassination attempt at Wolfschanze. Uh, against Hitler and in, in in the inner map room during a meeting they were having. Really a horrible, shocking uh, event in the fact that it could even have taken place. And then to discover that it was arranged, it was traitors, the people behind it were in the uh, in the German high command, right there. Oh, And so I'm going to quote here from this Himmler speech, just one little part of it. It's, it makes everything very clear. He says, now comes 1941, the war against Russia. In these circles, there was a big hesitation. In circles, he means the, uh, the, the military circles, and particularly the, the, the German Army High Command circles. They said, we don't need the war with Russia. 
Stalin would have never done anything to us. But alone, the fact that Herr Stalin gathered 20,000 tanks at the border speaks for itself. What we found at the border speaks for itself. I recently told someone, you know, it is clear you're absolutely right that Stalin put his army together just to play a little war game. That's why he needed those 20,000 tanks and the huge air force. I, I'm going to have to point out here in case you miss it that Himmler is being ironic here, or you might even say sarcastic, uh, when he says, you know, it's clear you're right. Stalin just put that all there to play a war for a war game. He says, uh, Himmler goes on, we were lucky even if we should not keep a square meter of Russia as it looks today. So he's admitting that they might not keep, this is, this is August 1944, it looks like they're not going to keep any of what they gained in Russia. But he says, but we'll get back many thousands of kilometers, no doubt about it. Well, he's being positive, saying they're still going to get back a lot of what they've, uh, they've retreated, and they're gonna, they'll still get some of it back which they didn't, but he says, uh, but he's, he's being positive. He says, but even if we should not keep a square meter, realizing this is possible, this decision of the Fuhrer was the rescue of Germany and Europe in 1941. And he means that, that uh, and many people say that and believe that, that, that what Hitler did, what Barbarossa did and was, ended up saving Germany and Europe from being overtaken by the Soviet Union. So in that for that reason, it has its positive effect and was worthwhile. Had to be done, you might say. It had to be done. In the beginning of the Russian campaign in 1941, the lightning victories take place thanks to the bold revolutionary blitzkrieg strategy and tactics of the Fuhrer, and the generals are duly enthusiastic. But already at that time, I am beginning to see problems and errors which, I'm, which I have been trying to remedy, especially in the training of my officer corps. He's talking about his SS officer corps. I am talking primarily of moral shortcomings of that once excellent officer corps, and so on. Well, this is the subject of his speech, is the moral failings of this officer corps. But that's the end of what I'm quoting there from Himmler about Barbarossa. And so I'll now go on to Hitler declaring war on the USA, as uh, Jim says, because of the tripartite pact. I don't know if that was the reason. Uh, that that he They think that that's a mistake. He thinks that was a mistake also, and that's also commonly there on the uh, a lot of places around on the Internet. And this is really an easy one, because uh, the United States was already in the war, even though they hadn't declared war, they were involving themselves as, as it's well known. And Germany was ignoring the, the USA and what they were doing in order not to uh, make it worse, you see, in, in order not to give the United States an, a reason and an excuse for declaring war on Germany or behaving even more aggressively against Germany than they were. But now, with the war between Japan and the United States, Hitler decided, and I don't think he decided that against the advice of everybody else, uh, that they could fight this out in the open. And once they were able to do that, the Germans did a lot of damage to the United States Navy, especially with their submarines. 
the Jewish Anglo-American League against German National Socialism could be spoken of and attacked openly also. And uh, Hitler was doing that. In fact, he did that in the very speech that he, that he declared war. Roosevelt was a devious opponent and tool of the Jews, so there was no way to play nice with him. And we know about the Potocki Papers, which show that the United States was an enemy uh, of Germany from 1939 on. I mean, their their, uh, diplomacy was clearly anti-German, pro-British, and they were doing everything they could to work with the Poles to continue to provoke Poland to be antagonistic toward Germany. So the Roosevelt-Churchill Pact was busy provoking Poland so that Poland wouldn't sign an agreement with Hitler, which is what Hitler wanted. You know, Hitler never wanted to destroy Poland. He he liked Poland being there. He wanted understanding between Poland and Germany, and he liked, as I said, he liked Poland being there because it was a protective buffer between Russia and Germany. It, It was Poland that wouldn't be friends with Germany. It was Poland that was saying it uh, was constantly being un- unwilling to sign any agreements and being very uh, recalcitrant when it came to Danzig and the corridor issue, uh, which was only very reasonable from Germany. And if, if Germany and Poland had a friendly relationship, that, that would have been, there was no problem with that. But Poland was not interested in friendship with Germany it became increasingly clear because they were wanted to be friends with Britain and uh, and America too and they 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 were doing the bidding of of uh, Britain and America in completely giving the cold shoulder to Germany even while the whole in the whole game was that they would pretend like they were going to be coming to an agreement they would promise to have meetings they would discuss things and say they might sign something but in the end They didn't do it, and it was very, very frustrating to Hitler's government. In fact, it was uh, was insulting, and it got down to where they were just plain insulting Hitler. And also, the attacks on the Germans in Poland were increasing for that very reason, partly for that very reason. And Poland was just itching. In fact, they couldn't even stop from saying they were itching to uh, vote a war against Germany. So finally, uh, you know, there was nothing that Hitler could do but to attack Poland first and do it in his own way rather than wait and wait this out and let the situation get worse and worse. This is what he did, and thinking that it could be a, a contained war and the British and the British and French would stay out. But they declared war on, on Germany, but they didn't they didn't begin a war. They just sat back and started building up their military uh, preparedness. So in this case, well, I got into that Poland thing, but it was really about uh, declaring war on the USA. So the USA was such an enemy. I guess that's the point there. The USA was such an enemy all this time, and the, and the Germans knew it, that it finally the, the Hitler thought he might as well come out in the open, declare war so that he could attack Attack the U.S. You can't attack countries that you haven't declared war on, according to international law. So, so that was the reason for that. Now, on the Volk, let's see. Oh, yeah, no, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So then Jim also said 
after he lists these three things that I just replied to, is for this reason I consider myself a national socialist as opposed to a Hitlerist, similar to how Marxists will say they're communists, but not Stalinists. I think national socialism should be about the Volk and not any one individual and to put principle before personalities, as the 12 steppers say. Yeah, I'm familiar with that, principles before personalities. I have quite a bit to say on this, but I say to Jim that you are being idealistic without being realistic. You know, it's nice to say these things. Oh, yes, we should, you know, it should be about the people and not uh, a, a single individual. Of course, you have to have a leader, don't you? You don't want to make Hitler the center of, of everything. That's what was wrong. But he's not being realistic. And you know, to say that it's similar to say that you're... Uh, he says that he can say that he's a national socialist, but not a Hitlerist. Just like you can say that you're a communist, but not a Stalinist. Well, the two things are not equal, because Stalin did not invent Marxism in any way, shape, or form. But Germany's national socialism was created by Adolf Hitler. Now, people can say national socialism was not invented by Adolf Hitler, but German national socialism was the creation of Adolf Hitler and the 25 points of the National Socialist Party and so on. And it's not really separate from him. You can talk about some generic national socialism if you want, but did any generic national socialism ever succeed anywhere? I mean, do we have an ex- do we have examples of it? We have examples of people in in Italy and Spain and uh, where else? Uh, maybe Romania. I don't know. Uh, writing about it, and we have examples of fascist leaders trying to establish themselves in places like uh, England and Romania and others. Oswald Mosley and the Romanian leader Codrino and so on, but they never succeeded in uh, winning over enough and taking over the government. Only Adolf Hitler did that, and they didn't have a a national socialism like his either. They didn't have a whole program uh, worked out. Maybe they had some kind of a program. But there's no other example of this kind of a system, except the one that Adolf Hitler not only came up with, but or let's say he didn't come up with it, but he brought it into reality and kept it going for many years and in great success before the war. So you can't separate it. You can try to. But I, when people talk about national socialism and say, I'm a national socialist, well, I don't agree with Hitler too much, and, and I, I don't like Germany too much, whatever, but, uh, but I like national socialism. It's about the people. Well, you know, that that's not going to get you anywhere and it's uh it's not just that it's not just that to be for the people you're just a populist you can just can just say you're a populist uh if you want to say i we need to have our government we need to have things coming from the people not from above but from below from the people on the now on this people on the volk or the folk the fact is that that folk cannot do anything without a leader. That the leader is. That's where the focus is. 
Because, uh, as Hitler said not long ago in, ta- in the table talk that we were reading, the folk cannot do anything, and the folk cannot make a decision. Uh, you can't expect them to. The leadership has to do that. The leadership has to make decisions. And in that Platterhoff speech that I uh, published recently that Carlos Porter translated, and is at carolynyeager.net, he talks about this, too, a lot. About He's talking to the officer, officers in 1944, around this same time. It was in May, before that assassination attempt. And he's telling them about what is expected of them as leaders, that they, they are leaders and they have to make decisions. And he's saying that if you, you, might, you might not want to make a decision. You might be afraid to make a decision. He doesn't say it that way, but that's the way I'm putting it. You'd like somebody else to make it, somebody higher up than you. Or they, you know, they, everybody thought that Adolf Hitler was making all the decisions. He wasn't, and he couldn't, and he didn't want to. It was a top-down hierarchy, right? But then as the, the power and the responsibility, it kept flowing downward. And at the uh, officer level in the military, he said, you have to make decisions about life and death. And if you're afraid to make them, well, you can't be afraid to make them. And you might not make them right. You're not going to be found at fault if your decisions don't all turn out right. That's just the way it goes. See, but you have to make a decision because decisions have to be made. You know, so um, this is very profound, really, but I'm not going to say any more about it than that. So, and everybody in national, in the National Socialist Party in Germany agreed on this and understood it. And this is what uh, kept discipline going. Discipline was very important. Uh, the leadership had to keep the discipline and then to dis- keep the people disciplined. And he said, uh, as, as I already said, he said often enough that the people cannot do anything of themselves, nor can they make a decision. That has to be done by the leadership. And, and the leadership has to be under the discipline of the leader. That's the Fuhrer precept, uh, the, uh, that there is, there is someone, the leader. The, of course, leader in German, uh, everybody knows that, that Fuhrer is the German word for leader. When they said, Mein Führer, they're saying, My Leader. Because there, that was the whole idea that it was based on, and it's a good idea if you have the right people. But you have to have somebody very special. Like Der Führer was. Uh, they, boy, he was special. And we can see now, from this perspective, nobody has come along like him, and nobody has ever done what he has done. I keep saying that, you know, that uh, all these people who say, well... He didn't do so great. We need to do this thing. Uh, you know, we need to cooperate. We need to do blah, blah. We need to, well, do it then. But they can't do it. They can't do it. And it's never been done. So even the Germans don't have the, anybody to do it now. You have to appreciate what you've got when you've got it. And if you don't, you lose it. Well, then then you're gone. Now, I say uh, that if, if Jim is a National Socialist, he must accept the principle of leadership. He says he, he's a National Socialist and he likes National Socialism, but he doesn't want a uh, personality cult. He doesn't want this leader who everybody uh, has to listen to and so on. He doesn't want a Fuhrer. Uh, he seems to be saying that. Or the Fuhrer must be more willing to listen to everybody, so he wants a more democratic system. He wants the Fuhrer to be at the to not have the right to make the final decision, which is what Hitler had. 
in spite of the fact that people could argue with him and, and uh, disagree with him and so on, he had the final decision, and that was the way it was supposed to be. Somebody has to. Uh, when it comes to comes to that, he wanted decisions made on all different levels. But if uh, if there were things that got too important or people weren't were not able to come to a decision, and finally the final decision was his. And this uh, this seems to bother Jim, who thinks that he was forcing his decision on every his own decision on everything. But if Jim says he's a National Socialist, and this is what I want to say to all those people who claim to be National Socialists, um, that you have to accept the principle of the leadership principle. It's not leadership by the folk. It's not. It's It has to be leadership by the leader. And that's essential to National Socialism. So let's look at the personality cult issue. He said, Jim said, and because the personality cult, which which is what National Socialism became, is vulnerable to failure, because after all, Der Fuhrer is never wrong, so Hitler's inner circle didn't dare question his tactical errors. Well, wrong. You see, there was no cult of personality around Hitler. There, there was no cult of personality in the Third Reich, German National Socialism, the Third Reich National Socialism. There was the leadership principle, which I've already explained. And you know, think about it. Were there did you ever see have there were there ever any large images of Hitler in the cities of Germany on big uh, banners or hanging from lampposts or whatever or billboards or whatever like you see like, like existed in the Soviet Union, or exist in a lot of places where they put images of where the le- or I don't know the government puts images of its own people up there like that. Mostly communist. That's mostly a communist type of. You didn't see that in Germany. All you ever saw on all these banners and flags that were hanging around when something big was going on was the swastika. The swastika, the symbol of the National Socialist Party. That, uh, that Hitler had picked out. So that represented National Socialism. That represented the folk. Uh, there was no pictures of him. He didn't like that. He didn't want that. He didn't allow it. And one thing I'll say is kind of interesting is that we were reading about the art exhibits in Munich. Now, Hitler instituted an annual art exhibit in the great Munich Art Museum for German art. And... All German artists were allowed to enter their artwork into this exhibit. There, it was selected. So the only only the best ones. They are a group of judges. How art big art shows are, and only the best ones were selected. So there were there were over a thousand works of art in that exhibit every year, and uh, but they were selected out of like seven or eight thousand that were entered. And naturally, in Germany, a lot of artists, they loved Hitler, you know. they they uh, He was their leader, and he had done a lot for them already. He, they knew how much he had accomplished, and they were all for him. So a lot of, uh, of these artists would paint pictures or do sculptures of him. And so there were a whole lot of them entered, and uh, some of them were of the better artwork. But Hitler, there were so many images of him selected, and that bothered him, and he made a rule right off the bat, only one. 
Oh, uh, maybe two, but I seem to remember it was only one. The best one of all of a picture of himself could be in that art show, but no more than that. He, he didn't want people to go in there and see all these paintings of him, and even though the people wanted to do them, and they continued to do them, uh, and they would send him what they had done, which were pictures of him and so on, uh, all kinds of Germans. This was just a German thing. Uh, another thing that's uh, rather touching, but it's common too, was that most of the homes in Germany had a picture of Adolf Hitler on their wall. Well, he was the leader of the country, and that they had been doing that for hundreds of years, and it's done in other countries too. Do you think in uh, other countries of Europe they didn't have pictures of their current king or, or maybe queen um, on their wall? They all did. They all do that. And in once uh, Hitler became, well, maybe probably before he became chancellor, but certainly by that time, they it was very common to have a picture of him. But it wasn't something that he did or insisted on or uh, cared about, but he didn't forbid it. That would have been terrible if he did that because they, they wanted it there. Now, another thing is that Adolf Hitler was not planning or even wanting to rule until death, like so many autocratic leaders do and want. But he was always thinking about his successors and even trying to find one. And he was even trying to get uh, Hans Rudel uh, to stop flying in 1944 and come stay at headquarters and uh, with him to learn the job. And even in the beginning of 45, he was trying to do that. But Rudel was such a devoted pilot and so devoted to his crews and so on that he could not, he didn't want to leave. In fact, he hardly ever wanted to get out of his plane. He wanted to just keep going and uh, bombing things, you know, and helping the troops, uh, support, doing support for the troops and helping them to win because he was a a 100% fighter. Even though he realized that Hitler was trying to approach him about... Well, he absolutely told him to stop flying, and he even once ordered him to do it. But Rudel then uh, had his his kills, as they call them, you know, the the successes that he had in flying, put on somebody under somebody else's name in his squadron instead of his name, so it wouldn't be known that he was still flying. But he did keep flying. He he uh, he didn't follow the Führer's order, and I think I don't know if it was the Führer's order, but uh, after the Führer asked him to, and he. He talked, he said, oh, you wouldn't ask that of me, would you? He, it might have been uh, Goring or the Reichsmarschall uh, who gave that order. The Luftwaffe gave the order to him, but he didn't obey that. And uh, a lot of things like that could happen because uh, he, he was held in such high esteem and uh, Hitler understood. And Hitler also knew, and he said this, that he couldn't, order a person to come and learn to be the Fuhrer of Germany. If you didn't want to do it, you couldn't order somebody to do it. And anybody in a high position, he felt he could never order them. And he didn't order, except that as commander-in-chief, he would finally give out the order that way. But he, he was not uh, didact- he, he He insisted on, on things being done as he thought they should be once he came to that conclusion. But it wasn't because uh, people had, you know, that people couldn't disagree with him, and they did. And he spent a lot of time explaining 
to his officers and generals why he thought he, he was right in what he wanted them to do and why he thought they were wrong. And mostly, and they always uh, went along with it because uh, they couldn't come up with a, with an argument that was better than his argument or they just realized that they couldn't out, outrank him either. So, And he that was his job, to be the final decider of things. Hitler was uh, doing his job because he thought he was the the best qualified. He had started out in from 1920 or 1919 because he had this idea of what Germany needed and how to save Germany, that it needed to be saved. And he continued on because no one else was doing what he was doing. And he continued and devoted his life and his health and his whole being to being the Fuhrer of Germany because he knew that he was the only one capable of accomplishing what he had accomplished and what he hoped to accomplish. Not because he wanted to be the great person, great dictator either of Germany, of the, certainly not of the world, or of Europe or of the world, but because he was convinced that no one else could do it. No one else ever had, no one was trying to, only him. So he didn't agree with the idea of uh, more democracy or more, let's do more uh, group planning, you know, and see if we can come to a, an agreement here, which they never could come to an agreement with things like that. Generally, somebody has to give way, but all, it's all very inefficient to do things that way. So Hitler was not was not this dictator that he's described as being, and I'm surprised that someone who wants to be a national socialist <clears throat> should um, think should think that way, or somebody who is a national socialist or calls himself a national socialist a socialist should think that that think that Hitler had a personality like that and that Germany turned into a cult of personality around Hitler. I'm sure I know that a better, a better argument against all this and a better defense can be made, but this is the best one I've done tonight because I don't want to go into it too long and I, I'm not really up to uh, doing any more than this, but I think this basically touches on everything that he brought up in, in, his, in his email. I will say that uh, I would like this conversation to continue, and I can bring it up and on other shows, and I can have guests. Now I've got um, I've got my Skype recorder downloaded, and so I can now record programs between me and other people on Skype, and then upload it to my Blog Talk program page, and do it that way. So I'm not as limited as as I had been as I'm uh, learning this other technology, which is not too hard to do. So I'm going to close on that, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. This has been Carolyn Yeager on the Heretics Hour on March 16, 2015. Good night.